Our scripture passage today comes from Luke 19, verses 11 through 27. It's known as the parable of the ten minus. Hear the word of the Lord. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they had supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said thereafter, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minus. And he said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minus more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. And then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you, put my, did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him, and give it to the one who has ten minas. Then they said, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is the word of the Lord. It's difficult to stand for things today, isn't it? There's this whole world of fake news, cancel culture, and entrenched ideologies. News websites and social media sites are all swirling around. Our worlds feel like a battleground of ideologies and of mudslinging. And much of the time, we can either choose to enter into the fray or to stand back and observe it, but we can't seem to run from it. Over it all, for many of us, there feels what's like a, a mass erosion of community and trust. And beyond that, what does it really mean to stand for something in our time anyways? Is it just about posting something to your Facebook news feed and letting your own connections know what you stand for? Is it posting a Bible verse on your Instagram handle? Or is it posting a perfectly curated, theological, encouraging Christian quote with an inspirational phrase that sparkles with insight? What does it mean to stand for something? For us as Christians, there seems to be two primary dangers in that effort. We can be given to extremes or be given to indifference and to apathy. For some of us who are fighting the culture wars on social media, we might be tempted to think that those who aren't speaking up on their walls or feeds are all indifferent. They're apathetic. 
or they're uneducated. For some of us who aren't speaking up as much on social media, we must ask ourselves, are we not one typing because of indifference and apathy or because we haven't educated ourselves on issues? Or is it perhaps because we are overly critical of people who we feel are keyboard warriors? You see, as followers of Jesus, we must be on guard against these polar opposites of extremism and apathy, which often express themselves on social media. And maybe we need to seek a third way. Maybe we need to seek a better way. When we consider following in the way of Jesus, his way is not one that rules out standing for something. Actually, following in the way of Jesus means we must choose our allegiance wholeheartedly, completely. In fact, for those who claim the name of Jesus, their lives should be more defined by an allegiance to Jesus than anything else. His kingdom should be embodied in the way that they live and move. And most likely it's in the ways that aren't primarily defined by our social media profiles and keyboard engagement and even political affiliation. Following in the way of Jesus is risky business. Life in the kingdom is always risky business. Living in the way of Jesus' kingdom is risky because the rules and the ends and our roles aren't necessarily defined by us, our culture, our media, or our country. Life in the kingdom looks different because it's defined by God's authority and not our own. The best definition and summary of Jesus' kingdom I can give you is this. It is the realm where God's reign brings about what God really wants. It's the realm where God's reign brings about what God really wants. And in God's kingdom, Jesus is king. It's the realm where Jesus brings about what Jesus really wants. And we see in this parable that Jesus tells us that life in his kingdom asks something of us. And because his kingdom is so different, living life in his kingdom is always risky business. We've been back in the Gospel of Luke for a few weeks now, and what we've been doing is following Jesus towards the end of his public ministry in an effort to rediscover Jesus' kingdom. In Luke 9, Jesus was transfigured before his closest disciples, and this basically means he finally let his identity out of the bag. The disciples are convinced he's the Messiah now, the Son of God. They know that. They've seen it with their own eyes. And so with that out in the open, Jesus turns towards Jerusalem and he starts his journey there. Once he begins to approach Jerusalem as he's close, his followers, they're feeling the anticipation of something big that's about to happen. We even see that in our scripture passage today. In verse 11, Luke records that Jesus told them this parable because they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. His followers are expecting him to reclaim the power of Jerusalem to Israel and to defeat and expel the Roman Empire from their land. And even more, Passover is approaching. This is the time where Israel remembers their history. They remember and they celebrate their liberation from their oppressive slavery in Egypt. As Jesus gets close to Jerusalem, his followers are primed to believe that Jesus will be this militant Messiah that they had hoped for, the one who liberates them and, 
and does it then. He does it now. You can imagine the tension building around Jesus' journey towards Jerusalem. But what's clear in our passage today is that Jesus goes into this particular teaching moment and he tells this particular parable to correct his followers' misunderstanding of the kind of king that he is and the kingdom that he is bringing. The first words of Jesus as he tells the parable is found in verse 12. He says this, A nobleman went to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Who do you think Jesus is talking about? It's not a rhetorical question. He's talking about himself. Jesus is the nobleman who goes away to be crowned as king. And this is literally what Jesus is about to do, right? Jesus is heading to Jerusalem to be crowned as God's king through the coronation of the cross and the celebration of his resurrection. But this nobleman, he goes away, and before he returns to establish his full rule and reign, he gives his servants each some money. This sum of money was approximately 100 days wages, so it was no small gift. And remember, and remember, this was just a gift by the nobleman. The money wasn't earned, it was simply given to his servants because they were his servants. And each servant was given the same amount, so no one could boast to the others that they had received more. It was all the same. It also appears that this nobleman wasn't entirely beloved. There was some hostility towards him. It appears the majority of the citizens in his land hated him, and they did not want to be ruled by him. And this is a time just to make a side note, point out something important. Jesus isn't clueless that people don't want him to rule over them. Jesus is well aware that we don't want a king. One scholar writes, The human ego can find limitless reasons why no one should reign over us. We want to be our own kings. We want to build our own kingdoms. We want to reject the legitimacy of Jesus' kingship. But the parable is clear. The grumbling among the citizens doesn't change the fact that Jesus is still the king. And we can deny the legitimacy of who Jesus is, but that doesn't really bother him or change our reality. He is still the king whether we acknowledge it or not. So when this nobleman returns from the far country, he calls his servants and inquires about his money. And the first two servants are rewarded with greater responsibility because of their faithfulness with the money. What's interesting about this is that the king does not give them more money as a reward for their faithfulness. Instead, he gave them greater responsibility. And on the other side, this seems to counteract the prosperity gospel that we see, which says that faithfulness is rewarded with financial blessing from God. No, faithfulness is rewarded with responsibility and authority in God's kingdom. But unlike the first two, the third servant comes before the nobleman and he has not done anything with the money. We don't know exactly why, apart from the reason the servant gives, which is kind of a questionable one. Perhaps it was that the servant ultimately distrusted the king, or even that he capitulated to the majority of folks who didn't 
want the king to return. So he assumed that the nobleman wouldn't come back and account for what he had done with the funds. But whatever lies behind it, the reason the servant himself gives for not touching the funds is that he thinks the nobleman is severe. And so out of fear, he buried the money. Now the king doesn't end up admitting to being severe. He simply responds to the servant by judging the servant on his own words. And notice too that the servant isn't put on the same level as the enemies of the nobleman. The servant isn't to be slaughtered like the enemies of the nobleman are. The only thing that happens is that his money is taken away from him. The enemies of the nobleman, however, are to be brought before him to be slaughtered. It's unequivocal. We are clearly told what the enemies of the nobleman deserve. And yet the parable ends without the punishment being carried out. We're not told exactly what happens to them. We can assume that they were slaughtered or instead, as the parable suggests, be left in some suspense. When reflecting on this parable, scholars say that the grace and the generosity of the nobleman is on full display in this parable. He's distributing the minus, which are very large sums of money, and he rewards very generously, generously for, to those who were faithful. The king even shows mercy to the one servant who was unfaithful. And two, even though the judgment upon the enemies is announced, it isn't carried out just yet. So this parable is a bit confusing, isn't it? What is Jesus getting at? See, these are often the parables of Jesus. Jesus didn't teach in easy-to-understand ways. No, Rabbi Jesus, he taught in ways that would draw a response from the crowd who was following him. There would be those who noticed that there were some, some hidden truths in what he was saying, that there were these seeds of astounding truth that he was dropping, and because they couldn't quite grasp what he said or that this would, this would cause them to lean in closer to hear Jesus explain these secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Even his disciples did this. But there were plenty that walked away from Jesus too. Jesus told stories. He healed people. He claimed to be God. And some rejected him for that. Surely some were apathetic. Surely some were confused. Some were too busy to listen to what he had to say. Even people in his day walked away from him. This parable of Jesus is about life in the kingdom. It's about life under King Jesus. The question I asked before the parable was, what does risky kingdom business look like? Well, I think this parable reveals that risky kingdom business looks like three things. The first is that Risky kingdom business looks like associating our lives with Jesus. Jesus makes it abundantly clear in the parable that those who are faithful to, to him do so in an environment that is hostile to him. Look with me at verse 14. It's explicit. Jesus says, his citizens hated him. Allegiance to this king in the midst of a land turned against him, is a costly one, and it's a radical one. And I think this is the best way that I can illustrate it for you. Yes, that is a picture of my dad and I in full Browns gear 
walking into Arrowhead Stadium two weeks ago. I texted my family that it felt like Samwise Gamgee and Frodo Baggins as they entered into Mount Doom in Mordor to destroy the ring. When my dad landed in Kansas City, he texted me, I just landed in enemy territory. We were fully in Browns gear. We were wearing Nick Chubb jerseys and we were walking into the very beating heart of Chief's kingdom. This felt like allegiance to our team in the midst of a hostile environment. And I should be honest here, Chiefs fans were largely very nice, and in fact, I'm fairly certain they were a lot nicer than Cleveland Browns fans would have been if the situation were reversed and Kansas City was playing in Cleveland. But my point is this. Real allegiance to Jesus' kingdom means actually associating your life with Jesus, even if and especially when it's in a hostile environment. Real allegiance to Jesus' kingdom means actually associating your life with Jesus. Here's a question for you. What does allegiance look like? And I'd say it's not necessarily being a keyboard warrior. It's not necessarily provoking or stoking conflict like being dressed head to toe in Browns gear does when you walk into Arrowhead Stadium. No, allegiance and association with Jesus seems to be, in this parable, largely defined by faithfulness to what Jesus has given us. You see, when the nobleman returns, he calls his servants to him and he asks them, what have they gained in his time away? This is the only time this word translated as gained actually appears in the New Testament. And the primary meaning is this. How much business have you transacted? How much business have you done? One scholar says this about Jesus' intention behind using this phrase. He says this. He's seeking to discover to the extent to which they have openly and publicly declared their loyalty to him during this risky period of his absence. The primary meaning of this key word reinforces my suggested understanding of the master's original charge to his servants. Before the master departed, he challenged his servants to represent him publicly during uncertain times of his absence and assured them of his return. You know, Jesus is returning. He has promised us that. And in our last series on heaven, Jesus was very direct that he is coming back. In this parable, there is an expectation by the nobleman when he gives the minus to his servants that they would steward those gifts both publicly and productively. And just like that, Jesus challenges us to represent him publicly during uncertain times and in his absence. And when you break it down, I think it looks like this. We live our lives before an audience of one in public. We should be public with our faith. We shouldn't be ashamed of it. We shouldn't be bullies about it. But we should be public with it and as best we can winsomely carry the banner of Jesus throughout our daily lives. If this is our true identity, as one who is a citizen of Jesus' kingdom, then it should be important for us to demonstrate that and demonstrate it through faithful presence. Faithful presence isn't 
forcing spiritual conversations on people. Faithful presence is living amongst, amongst others who don't share the Christian faith. It's witnessing through our words, our actions, our integrity, our honesty, and the embodiment of the fruit of the Spirit. It can mean intentionally starting spiritual conversations with coworkers, friends, and family. When a coworker asks, what did you do this weekend? Instead of naming all the other things you did besides church, you could say, well, I went to church yesterday. Are, are you a person of faith? Faithful presence is largely defined by, by knowing others and them knowing you. And in that knowing, in that relationship, your faith is one of those things you're very comfortable owning and eager to share about. And real quickly, I do want to say that if you're not comfortable sharing your faith, I understand. And you can join the club. There's no shame here, but maybe try to think of some simple next steps where you can get out of your comfort zone a little bit. Think of a person you think you could share your faith with and that would maybe receive it well. Remember, living life in Jesus' kingdom looks like risky kingdom business. A significant element of that risky business is simply faithful presence. It's associating our lives with Jesus in public. Another large component of risky business, risky kingdom business, is stewarding our gifts from Jesus. The nobleman is, is one who distributes the gifts, and the parable reveals that implicit in that distribution is that those gifts would be used. They would be stewarded, shared, and, and multiplied. The source and the credit of the gift that is from the nobleman is reinforced in the first servant's response in verse 16. He says, Lord, your mina has made ten minas. Yours has made more. As we continue on in the parable, the servants who used their money faithfully were rewarded with more responsibility. And at the end, in verse 26, Jesus reaffirms that those who use their gifts will be blessed with more reward. Not with more reward, but with more responsibility. And I think it is fascinating that in the kingdom of Jesus, the blessing of faithfulness is actually an increased responsibility in serving Jesus. One scholar said it this way, knowledge of God's reign and salvation brings with it added responsibility. To accept the kingdom and its salvation is to accept a trust. It enlists one as an agent on behalf of the kingdom. And all those who are enlisted will be rewarded or judged in terms of their, in terms of their faithfulness to their task. So what's true in this parable is not just there is, that there is a reward for those who are faithful, but also that those who fail to use their gifts will have their gifts taken from them. This is a principle that makes sense to us even outside of the context of the kingdom of Jesus, but it's still hard to hear. In a way, when the servant is, has, taken, has his gift taken away, it doesn't as much feel like a lack of a reward, but it's about receiving what was deserved. What I mean is that the servant clearly didn't want the responsibility of the gift, and so he was relieved of that responsibility. I want to pause and just ask this question. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for us as we try to associate ourselves with Jesus? 
I want to go back to this short phrase, faithful presence, because I think it helps us again here. I think a large part of our faithful presence outlined in this parable is that we steward and we multiply our gifts. For some of us who struggle to know what our gifts are, I think this means that we just continue to seek out trusted voices in our lives who can help us identify those gifts. Our gifts aren't just what bring us joy, though that's important, but they're also what brings blessing to others. And very practically, if you know where you're gifted, I encourage you to continue to deepen and to grow those gifts. And if you're tired of exercising your gifts, I'm pretty sure that you're most likely not exercising all of your gifts. Expand your list of gifts. Explore possibilities with your time, your talent, and your treasure. It's clear that wise, faithful investing in the kingdom pays off in the end. Be faithful in little, and the Lord will honor that in much. Engaging in in risky kingdom business means associating ourselves with Jesus. It means stewarding the gifts that we have received from Jesus. And last, it means conducting our work for Jesus. The one command that the nobleman gave before he was crowned is what he said in verse 13. Engage in business until I come back. There's an expression just embedded within the original language here. And it, in the Greek, it, it reads enho, which is, which is translated as the word until. But it quite literally means this, in which. And one, in one scholar, in, in which, quotes, in which. And to one scholar, he suggests that this verse, verse 13, could actually be translated as this. Engage in a trade in a situation in which I'm coming back. Engage in a trade in a situation in which I'm coming back. And how does this help us understand what Jesus is saying? Well, it helps us grasp that the emphasis is not about time. And it's not as much about getting as much done as possible while he's away. While there is perhaps some good intentions around that, the focus here is on conducting business in such a way that we understand Jesus is king and we are citizens of his kingdom. There's an organization known as the Theology of Work Project, and they say this about this parable. The point is that acknowledging Jesus as king requires working towards his purposes in whatever field of work you do. Engaging in risky kingdom business means that we are working with the kingdom in mind. And this, is also, this also means that we have a continued faithful presence. So as we go out about our Monday vocations, we'd be wise to remind ourselves and ask ourselves of a few questions. Who am I really working for? Who am I really reporting to? How would Jesus conduct my work review? I want to take a moment just to pause again and to acknowledge that some of us might feel stalled in our work right now. We haven't seen progress that we've hoped for. We're stuck in the mud. The results aren't coming, both personally and professionally, and we're frustrated. And we live in an anxious age where we often define ourselves by our work. Henri Nouwen, the Catholic priest and author, once wrote that we live in a generation that likes to see with our own hands what we have made. 
For example, pastors can want to build big churches with lots of people because they want to prove to themselves that they're a success. And we like to climb up our social or professional hierarchies or even become famous because it gives us value and we feel like we finally have an identity. We like to achieve in order to prove to ourselves that we are indeed who we thought we were deep down inside. You know, instead of fighting this battle of constant upward mobility and our identity being wrapped up in that journey, now one points us to Jesus. By the Roman government standards and by the Sanhedrin standards, when Jesus died, he died as a failure on a cross. His disciples had abandoned him. He was just a religious dissident from an obscure village who had finally been put to death after three years of growing disruption. And yet, the work that Jesus did, his public ministry, and ultimately his resurrection, though there was no immediate glory forthcoming in that path, and nothing much to show for it immediately, this life, death, and resurrection of Jesus was the most transformational moment in human history. Jesus was resurrected in this small group of 12 men that he had around him for three years began to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I could go on and on throughout history, but here we are today. Now one reminds us that even though we like to see with our own hands what we have made, in order to attach our value to something we have done, we must ultimately trust Jesus with our lives and with our work. We must trust Jesus with the work of our hands. We must trust that ultimately God will make our lives and God will make our love fruitful, even after we are gone. Through Jesus, God has proven that he does that. So as we go throughout our weekdays, and even though we live in this crazy scheduled world, we might not feel like we're taking much ground at all, but we can trust that if we are walking with Jesus, He will make our lives fruitful. As we end our time together, let's go back to the main character of our parable today, the nobleman. Jesus is the true and better nobleman who has been so generous to us. He is the one who has been declared the king of the kingdom of God. And he was declared king, not through the pageantry of a royal coronation or even through the power of military conquest. He was crowned on a cross and he conquered for his kingdom through being conquered. He endured all of our costs of sin so that we might receive all of his blessings of the life in his kingdom. Jesus is the king who gave himself for us to live for him, even though it comes with risks, is very worth it. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we pray that your word would not just be black words on white pages that confuses us, but it would be the words of life. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would it be the bread that sustains us? Father, would you reveal yourself more and more to us?
Jesus, may we align our lives with you through the power of your spirit left as a deposit within us. And help us to be marked by you and your spirit. Marked by love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Father, we love you. It's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen. And as we move into our time of communion, I'm reminded of this liturgy. Hang in there with me. The table of bread is now to be made ready. It is the table of company with Jesus and all who love him. It is the table of sharing with the poor of the world with whom Jesus identified himself. It is the table of communion with the earth in which Christ became incarnate. So come to this table. You who have much faith and you who would like to have more, you who have been here often and you who have not been for a long time, you who have tried to follow Jesus and you who have failed, come. It is Christ who invites us to meet him here. Let me read into your hearing the words of institution from Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Take them in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. Amen.